Hi everyone, I'm Nico and I'm from the Bay Area. I'm starting a podcast about local issues in history. This first episode tells a story that is very much not modern day. Here's the story of a murder mystery that involved thousands of people. Hope you enjoy. San Jose is, in many ways, an idyllic place in the eyes of many. The name that the city and the surrounding area have built for themselves in the technology sector is second to none. The diverse population of the city is more prosperous than ever, with San Jose often being listed as one of the most affluent communities in the United States. Even its downtown core, a cold place that is a remnant of its former self, is not exactly a bad place to be. Downtown San Jose is the site of San Jose State University, the prominent public university in the area. San Jose State has a long history, having started its time in San Jose as a teacher's college in the year 1871. The Teacher's College and the area surrounding it was a bustling place well into the 20th century, and it still is. For this story, let's set the picture for 1933. The Great Depression was ravaging communities across the United States, and San Jose was not the exception. However, it was nowhere near as bad as communities to the east, who had become famous for their migrant Okies who had come to California in search of work. Though California's unemployment rate at one point in the decade was more than 25%, Many local businesses owned by San Jose's gentry were able to survive. One of those was L. Hart & Son Department Store, a family business that had been started by an Alastian immigrant, Leopold Hart, in the year 1866. After Leopold's son, Alex J. Hart Sr., took over the business, it expanded to the sort of landmark status that Macy's hold over Manhattan. The store was nestled in a beautiful, busy part of downtown, which was the perfect location for a business that was considered to be part of the fabric of the city. The store was famous for its attentive customer service, which helped to weather the Great Depression especially well compared to its peers. The prominent Hart family seemed like they had it all. They were respected and successful, and the family business seemed like it had a future with its heir, Brooke Hart. Brooke Hart would be the fourth generation of Hart to run the store when he would hypothetically take over from his father. He was a handsome guy and was already well known by the people of San Jose, given that he had spent his youth working in the family store. After he graduated from Bellarmine College Prep, a high school that is still infamous to this day, he attended Santa Clara University. He graduated from there with a degree in business and went back to the family store, quickly being promoted to junior vice president by his father. Brooke looked like he had a great future ahead of him, and in any normal situation, he would have. However, Brooke did not get to live a normal life. Just before 6 p.m. on Thursday, November 9, 1933, Brooke went to retrieve his car from a parking lot near the store so he could drive his father to a meeting at the San Jose Country Club. However, Brooke never made it back to the store. Hours passed, and he didn't appear. The people close to him didn't know why. Perhaps he had gone to meet a girl, perhaps he had just forgotten and gone on with one of his escapades that were sort of characteristic of him. Little did anyone know what had really happened. What unfolded that night would be the cause of mass hysteria that would shake California for years to come, involving a governor, numerous cities, and several thousand people. It would end in the death of at least three people. The truth was that Brooke Hart had been kidnapped. Brooke was supposed to be following a tight schedule that night. He was to drive his father to a halfway point where an acquaintance would drive him the rest of the way to the San Jose Country Club. Brooke had a public speaking class to attend with his best friend at 6.30 at a hotel downtown that the family had helped fund. His best friend, Charlie O'Brien, was another son of a San Jose business dynasty. The O'Brien family were the proprietors of the first ice cream parlor west of Detroit, and it occupied a similar space and culture as a San Jose institution. The two boys were of similar age and had both attended Santa Clara University together. As time passed, his father became more and more unsettled. 
It was out of character for Brooke to keep his father waiting. In many ways, he was the model son, and everyone seemed to think so. Brooke's father got his daughter to phone around, but there was nowhere Brooke could be found. Eventually, around seven, he got an employee of the store to drive him to the Chamber of Commerce meeting. Elise, the sister that had phoned around, called home to report the situation to another sister of Brooke's, Miriam. Brooke had three sisters and a younger brother. Miriam was far from worried, and she didn't expect that anything was horribly wrong. The 20-year-old was getting ready to go to a painting class when the phone rang yet again, this time from Brooke Hart's best friend, Charlie O'Brien. Did Brooke come home sick, Miriam? He asked. Miriam said she thought he was with him. Charlie said that he had never showed up. At that point, it was clear nobody could tell where Brooke Hart was. Charlie O'Brien was quickly at the Hart residence, a beautiful mansion on the centrally located Alameda, in a matter of minutes. The Chamber of Commerce dinner that Alex Hart was attending at the San Jose Country Club was happening at an interesting time for San Jose and the country. To quote Harry Farrell in his book Swift Justice, the Great Depression, entering its fifth year, suffocated the land. In San Jose, as much as anywhere, men were idle, business was off, hobos poured into town on every freight. The fittest of the town shopkeepers were surviving, but for others, it was a time for quiet despair. The meetings were always interesting. After all, prohibition, which was extremely controversial, was in effect, and FDR's New Deal was also in full spring, breathing some new life into the American economy. Alex Hart barely had any time at the meeting, though, before his presence was requested at the club's telephone. It was his daughter at home, Miriam, informing him that Brooke had never showed up to the class and O'Brien had no idea where he was. Alex Hart began to be worried. He arranged for Charlie O'Brien to come get him and for the chief of police to be called. When the chief of police, John Black, received a desperate call from Miriam, who was now quite worried, his response was more than a little rude. What do you want me to do? He was quoted as saying. He wasn't very much help, yet, at least. The residence was beginning to descend into a tornado of emotions. Brooke's mother, Nettie Hart, was beginning to suffer severely, though her children tried not to alarm her. It was not O'Brien that ended up picking up Alex Hart from the country club. It was his daughter, Miriam. Him and his daughter held a meeting, reviewing all that had happened in the past two hours. It was still unclear if Brooke was truly in danger or if they even had anything to worry about. Remember, this was a time before cell phones and instantaneous communication from anywhere so Brooke might have just been out and about. However, what was happening was still out of the ordinary. Alex Hart decided to pay the chief of police a visit himself, thinking that perhaps that would make him a little more receptive. When they met with him, he was still standoffish, and it was deeply unnerving to the hearts. The story took a turn for the worst. As time drew on, there was no more information to be found. That was until the phone rang. Elise answered the phone, saying her hellos. Her father and Miriam had not returned yet. A voice responded. It was a man. He asked if her brother was missing. She said he was. The man asked if her father was home. She said no. The man told her that her brother had been kidnapped. The phone line went out, even after Elise begged the mysterious man to hold the line as she awaited her father. Alex came home at a really bad time, the man having just called. It would have been horrifying for the family given what they were up against. They knew they had to get back downtown to the chief of police. He would have to listen now. It turned out Black had not been as idle as they had thought. He had called the telephone operator, asking them to trace all calls to Hart's home. He had been in contact with the detectives in San Francisco, given that it was the closest big city just up the peninsula. 
the department's four radio cars were also out patrolling. That brought up the total to 19 cars, since 15 of Alex Hart's employees were out combing back streets. The telephone operator found results relatively quickly. The call originated from a speakeasy in San Francisco, some 50 miles away. It was 10.30 when the phone rang again. A family friend who was at the Hart home picked it up. It was the same voice. Miriam picked it up from another line after a little bit. The man on the phone recognized her voice somehow and immediately started relaying information. He said that he and whoever he was working with had a brother and that it would cost them $40,000 to get him back. He said to stay away from the police and the press. He threatened Brooke's life. He said they would phone more instructions the next day. The family was more than horrified. They soon found out that the call had been placed at a hotel in San Francisco, not far from where the original call had been placed. The employees and the police were still out searching for Brooke's vehicle until past midnight. The employees rolled in one after another, none of them having seen anything suspicious. Ironically, someone who Alex Hart, Brooke's father, had seen just hours prior was the one who would find the car. On the way back to his ranch in the foothills, the manager of the country club saw a car parked to the side of the road. The lights were on, which was kind of strange. He stopped to ask if they need help. There was no one in the car. It was a green car, a Studebaker, just like Brooke Hart's car. His wife told him that car had been there since 7 o'clock. He began to put the pieces together. He phoned the sheriff, and they soon discovered the license plate was an exact match. They had found Brooke's car. This was a pivotal moment, as they finally had another clue that might help them paint the bigger picture. In all reality, it didn't really make painting the picture much easier. Brooke's car was found outside of city limits, so the case now clearly fell under the jurisdiction of Sheriff Emick, not the chief of police, John Black. This had the possibility of greatly helping the sheriff or being a great disservice to him since election season was just around the corner. On another political note, Congress had passed what was known as the Lindbergh Act, which established a federal jurisdiction in any kidnapping where extortion was attempted or the mail was used. Kidnapping for ransom had become something that had been happening in the United States more times than anybody was comfortable with. An agent named Reed E. Viterli was the face of their involvement, and he had been working on this case since the phone calls had started. He had ordered roadblocks on all highways leading down the peninsula. It's important to keep in mind that the Golden Gate and all other bridges leading out of SF were unfinished at the time, so San Francisco was only accessible by car from the south. An FBI agent was also stationed inside of the Hart House, where he would intercept calls. The car being found also didn't stop people from making pretty crazy theories about Brooke Hart's disappearance. Three days before he vanished, Brooke Hart had attended the funeral of a good friend of his, where he had served as a pallbearer. The detectives thought that might have signified something. His friend had been an expert horseman, but had died from a horse after a nasty fall. Brooke had seen it all happen. Of course, this picture of a young man stricken with grief did nothing to explain the ransom calls, and trying to paint the calls off as some sort of hoax was pretty absurd. Another theory was that he had gone around with some girls and snuck off to Sacramento or somewhere similar. However, when they spoke to his primary love interest, who was around for the entire ordeal, it made them think that it was quite improbable. Another thing that proved suspicious was an ordeal that Brooke had told his father about the day before he disappeared. It had happened in October, several months prior. As Brooke had been parking his car in downtown San Jose, three men in another car had attempted to pin him to the curb. However, he had gotten away. The reactions just kept coming and coming from across the valley and across the bay. 
Driven by a variety of different motives, people came up with their own observations. One employee said that she had seen Hart many days after his supposed kidnapping, alone in his car. A farmer claimed they had seen the car up in the hills where they had found it, but with Hart inside, only for him to be gone when he came back down the road. Another man said they had seen Hart free of distress some hours after his disappearance. Things were sort of a dead end. It was hard for the investigators to work with what they were given. Locals were not the only people who had their theories. Brooke Hart sightings were plentiful all across the state of California. In Marin County, a tall young man matching Brooke's description was seen walking like a zombie by a group of girls. Someone reported a sighting of him 100 miles north of Marin at around the same time. Organized crime was all the rage in the early 20th century, and a Chicago government official told the press that he was sure that Jack Clutis, a gang leader, had been the one who did it. Clutis was sought after for a string of ransom kidnappings in the Chicago area. That was not the only theory of it being a cross-state lines, mobster type, who was responsible. Chief Black thought that the theory couldn't be further from the truth. He told newspapers that it must be local talent. After all, they had known much about Brooks' habits, family, and friends. They had used his sister's name. He thought that only someone familiar with the geography of the area would pick the remote mountain road that they had to abandon his car. Not only did individuals speculate, the news outlets did as well. Fictitious communications between the kidnappers and the Hart family started appearing, which did nothing but hurt the grieving family. The father denied the worst of the lies, which was a blow to the reputation of some of the newspapers, but definitely not their bank accounts. The Hart case was flying off the shelves. No big developments came until late on Friday night. The tanker ship, the Midway, docked at San Francisco after a long trip. A merchant seaman by the name of Michael Redinger's attention was drawn to an object on the deck of the ship, which had been previously submerged. It was a wallet, and upon examination, it was immediately obvious who it belonged to. He went into town and dumped the contents on a newspaper editor's desk. The driver's license, public library card, and other identifications were in the name of Brooke L. Hart. A gigantic development like this meant that there would be a new focus on the sea, trying to find any hint they could. Ships were searched, including a ship that Babe Ruth, the famous baseball player, was on with his family. Like most other things, this did not yield any quantifiable results. They still only had two clues, his car and his belongings, which were found a long way apart from each other. Furies continued, and the newspapers continued to seize on every hypothetical to keep the story in the press. Brooke's mother, Nettie Hart, was taking it horribly. Friends gathered round, but to no avail. That Sunday, many of San Jose's churches had Brooke in their prayers. There was one particularly interesting rumor that Sheriff Emig wanted checked out. He contacted Marshall Hall, a Stanford Law School graduate and son of a prominent physician, to take a cruise up the bay in his family boat. They were investigating a report on file with a local police department. Two local businessmen, who worked in the wood business, had been looking for driftwood in the marshes of the bay near the San Mateo Bridge, when at around 7.25, they had seen an automobile stop along the bridge. They then heard a man's voice crying out for help. Marshall agreed to help look as the community's fear and anger only grew. People had even began fingerprinting for completely unreasonable things. Also, on Monday, an envelope had came in with another ransom message. The agent who read it decided that it was the work of a crank. A second one came soon after, on Tuesday, that was thought to be more credible. This one told them to put a numbered one on the window of the Hart store to signify they had received it, and for Alex Hart, the father, to drive south with a satchel full of money. The idea was that he would be apprehended on his route, and the money would be taken. It was iffy at best, 
but the agents thought it was at least important to open a dialogue, so they did. They wrote a number one on cardboard. Now, I know this is a lot of info, but I promise we're getting to the more interesting part. A late night call was received, that Hart drive to deliver the ransom. Hart was trained to stall, and stall he did. He asked for proof that his son was with the caller. He stalled for as long as he could because of a phone tap that had been placed on the Hart's telephone. They were able to trace the call to a car garage in downtown San Jose, but the caller was gone by the time the authorities arrived. The next day, the 16th of November, a demand arrived yet again, telling the father to drive with the ransom. That night, around 8 p.m., another caller was received, and the demand repeated. This time, the criminal didn't get too lucky. The call was traced to a payphone in a parking garage at Market near San Antonio in downtown, just some 100-some feet from the police station, where they arrested the man as he was hanging up. That man was Thomas Harold Termond, a San Jose native. They quickly brought him in for questioning. He tried to deny having anything to do with it for hours. He claimed that he was a good, religious guy, and that he would never do anything like what had happened. He didn't let up until an agent told him that they had been listening into his conversation on the telephone and knew his voice. At 3 a.m., Berman signed a confession in which he admitted to having bound Brooks' hands with wire and tossed him off the San Mateo Bridge into the bay on the night of the kidnapping. This brought some light to the rumor that involved the bridge. He identified his accomplice, John Holmes, an unemployed salesman and also a native of San Jose. John Holmes was found very quickly and was arrested at a hotel in downtown, not far at all. The questioning brought some harrowing truth into the matter, namely the bridge situation. It sounded absurd. Even today, with our instant access to information, it seemed like a particularly horrific crime. Here is some of Furman's confession printed in the Oakland Tribune on November 16th. 1933. Then we came to the San Mateo Bridge and drove onto it for about half a mile to where the water flows under the bridge. We stopped the car and ordered Brooke to get out. He started to cry for help, and Holmes hit him over the head a couple of times with one of the bricks. They were pretty good blows, and he didn't give us much trouble after that. We then tied his arms behind him with the wire and also bound his legs with it. We picked him up, hand and foot, and heaved him over into the water. I don't know whether he cried or not. I don't know whether he was conscious or not, or whether he drowned or was killed before he hit the water. Before we threw him over, we took his wallet away from him. There was 15 in it, and we split the money between us. It all did add up. The Studebaker in the hills, the reports of a man screaming in agony by the bridge. It seemed perfectly plausible and was accepted as fact, as both man's stories were congruent. Local papers reported that Holmes and Furman would attempt to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Furman claimed that he had gone crazy because a sweetheart had married another man. Laughable. State psychiatrists from a nearby mental hospital determined that both men were sane. Now that they had a sure understanding of what happened, police officers from around the bay began searching for Brooks' body. The first big physical clues were found on November 18th. Two bricks were discovered, as well as apparent bloodstains. Two days later, on the 20th, the pillowcase used to mask Brooke was found, as well as his hat. This marked a turning point in the story, as the finding of the hat made it abundantly clear that Brooke Hart was no longer alive. They thought the kidnappers had shot Brooke as he struggled in the water. On the 22nd, workers that were constructing the Bay Bridge reported seeing a body floating in the water, prompting a search. The search grew to involve a blimp, police boats, U.S. Marines, and a hydraulic pump to dredge the mud from the bay. The search ended on November 25th, 
They didn't find his body. However, that wasn't the end of it. The next day, two hunters discovered a badly decaying body, eaten by crabs. A coroner identified it as Brooks. The autopsy said that Brooke had died from drowning. During this whole time, Holmes and Furman were the subject of much hatred. Newspapers ran articles calling them human devils. Names weren't the only thing that were being printed, either. Threats of mob violence ran rife. Sheriff Emig moved the two criminals to the Portrero Hill Police Station in San Francisco after the arrest to keep them safe from anything happening back home in San Jose. After a round of questioning, they were met with a crowd during their return to jail. The crowd yelled, lynch them. The prosecution came to what was almost a stalemate because of fears of mob violence. Prosecutors even declined to seek jury hearings in the fear that an indictment would incite such a thing. History rolled on, though, and on November 22nd, the two murderers were indicted on charges of extortion, using the mails for extortion, and conspiracy. They were returned to the San Jose jail. The governor at the time, James Rolfe, had been tuned in the entire time, given they had been all the news in his home state. He made headlines when he said that he would refuse to dispatch the National Guard to protect the criminals. The mob outside the jail just kept growing, and when the lawyer representing Furman asked the governor to call the National Guard should an effort be made to lynch his client, Rolf said that he would pardon the lynchers. Now, we have to remember that as this was happening, the body had still not been found. One could imagine that if the body was found, there would be trouble. The authorities did, at least. After the discovery of the body, word spread like wildfire across Northern California. Radio stations started issuing announcements that a lynching would occur in St. James Park. St. James Park is a park just north of downtown San Jose, across from some government buildings and what was the jail at the time. Crowds began to form before noon. People traveled from across the Bay Area in California to witness the mob violence that would undoubtedly unfold. Some people considered it entertainment, but others, after hearing about the Hart case for almost a month, considered it to be a true form of justice that they needed to take part in. By 9 p.m., a gigantic crowd of people had formed, ranging from 5,000 to 15,000 men, women and children, depending on who you asked. Governor Rolf canceled a planned trip to Idaho to stop the lieutenant governor, Frank Marion, from calling out the National Guard to stop the lynchings. The crowd got so sure of themselves that they began demanding the jail surrender Holmes and Furman. When they didn't get their way, they moved an improvised barricade that the sheriff had put up of parked automobiles to the side. It was clear what was about to happen. By midnight, tear gas was being fired. Thousands were angry, and the crowd just kept getting bigger and bigger. A nearby construction site was raided, and the materials were thrown into the jail. Somehow, from the construction site, the crowd was able to improvise a battering ram. The sheriff ordered his officers to abandon the bottom two floors of the jail, which was where the murderers were being held, as well as some other terrible criminals. The sheriff basically gave the surrender, ordering that no police officer was allowed to use their own physical force to defend the jail. The mob stormed the building, taking the prisoners. I think that maybe the best way to describe this was Deputy John Moore's recounting, quoted in the Oakland Tribune on November 27th of 1933. They opened Holmes' cell first on the second floor, and then they brought in a length of rope. There must have been 50 men who entered his cell. I stood outside. Are you Holmes? The man with the mask shouted at the prisoner, cringing in the corner. No, I'm not Holmes, he replied. You're a damned liar. I know you, the masked lyncher cried, and many hands drew the rope around Holmes' neck. He cried out for mercy. Spare me, spare me, don't take me out. Don't deliver me to that crazy mob, Holmes pleaded. Fists crashed across his face. He went down on the floor, still crying for mercy. Then he was kicked, and then they spat on him. 
His head was knocked against the floor. Dragging him on the end of the rope, they pulled his head first downstairs. Then those 50 leaders came up again to me and asked me if that was Holmes they had taken out. When I told them I didn't know, they said, You're a liar, Moore. You brought him from San Francisco and we know it. Once again, I was choked and thrown on the floor. Then the mob pushed upstairs and entered Furman's cell, but they could not find him. They came back and demanded matches. With the aid of the matches and a candle, they searched the cell. In a small closet adjoined to the cell, but still a part of it, they found Furman. Like a human fly, he had crawled up the walls, bracing himself against the sides with his feet and hands, to a height of 15 feet. It was an oddly built closet and extended up to the roof. When they sighted him in the light of the matches, the most terrible, blood-curling cries of fiendish delight I had ever heard rang through the jail. Both of the criminals were taken across the street to St. James Park. They were hung. Furman went first. He was dragged from the jail, the mob knotting a rope around his neck. After Furman was hanged from a tree, his trousers were torn off him, people hunting for scraps. Holmes still fought. He didn't stop until he couldn't anymore, as he too hung from a tree. From reporter Harold Fitzgerald, quoted in the Oakland Tribune, one conceited pull, and the white, blood-streaked body of the second of Brookhart's murderers swayed in a grisly rhythm in the light of a rising half-moon. A roar, mingled with women's screams, rolled across the park afterward. The crowd began pouring out of the park. Some did serpentine dances in the streets. Snatches of song came from here and there in the multitude.